Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to take it up and turn with me to the book of Acts, the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, we've provided Bibles in the pew back in front of you, and you can find this reading on page 887 in that, in that uh, Bible, or of course, you can always find this on any of your mobile device of choice. Um, the Bible, app, the Bible app, we'd encourage you to join us this morning. Uh, Acts 7 and 8 will be our text. We, we find ourselves at the end of a series that we've referred to as Live Like It Matters. It's built on the premise of a couple things. One is that I've yet to meet someone who says that they don't want to live a life of significance, that they want to live a life of complete indifference, that they don't want their lives to matter for much. But rather, we all are trying to find ways in which our lives actually matter our lives are more uh, important than, than what we, we are joined into something even far more significant than even our own lives, but we get to play a part, and a significant part, in what's going on. And so we've been thinking about these things, and thinking about the fact that if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that if he was really alive, then that ought to matter in the way in which we live our lives. And so since, since Easter... This has been our series, and so we come to its conclusion this morning. This week, I, I was been, I've been reading about someone that I'd like to introduce you to, um, Azam Aziz uh, Murabak. Uh, and Azam is what I will refer to him. He's Somalian, and um, so he lives in Somalia. He was the son of a Somali pirate warlord, and... Uh, he was in the next in line. He has a brother who is two years underneath him. And so Azam was next in line to follow in his father's footsteps until, until he had a meeting and an encounter with Jesus. And actually, Jesus spoke to Azam. He spoke to Azam several times. Seven, actually, is the amount of times that he spoke with him or spoke to him. And so when Azam was there, he was... He was there, uh, he, he was in a mosque, and he was talking to an imam at the mosque and was telling him about this experience, and the imam eventually uh, hit him. And so he left the mosque, and he went home, and his plan was to go and just lie down on his bed for the remainder of the afternoon, only to find when he went to his bedroom and he leaned against the doorpost, lying on his bed was a three-foot cross covered in blood. So there was this three-foot three cross covered in blood. And as he was looking at this, um, he, you can imagine the shock. Then he hears a voice. And it was a voice that he recognized because it was a voice, the voice of Jesus. He'd come to know as the voice of Jesus. And it said this, My blood is still fresh enough for you, Azam. Thrown, taken aback, he went into his mother to the other room, whose mom was in the other room, and, and says, Mom, come, did you hear, did you, do you see the cross? Did you hear the voice? And she says, I see no cross. His brother comes, and he also, hearing the commotion, comes, and, and hearing him talking, thinking his brother, his older brother, to be a spiritual deviant, then he grabs him by the back of the shirt, throws him down on the ground, and kicks him in the head. Then he goes off to tell his father about what he had seen and heard. Azam stands and says to his mother, Mother, you have to believe. Why would I make such a thing up? That they have heard from, you, have, you have to have heard from this Jesus. And she says to her son, 
you need to leave and never come back. And so he traveled over 25 miles to a nearby village, or to well, a village 25 miles away, in order that, he, because there he knew that he would have some friends that he could be with and stay with. He was there for three weeks, and during that time he knew that his father had a, probably had a general idea of where he was. But it turns out that his father actually had a specific idea of where he was. And one day, after he had been there for three weeks, he receives a package, and it's a package from his father. And let me just read to you the remainder of this account. The delivery man backed further away from Azam, or as Azam approached the package. Azam knelt and placed a hand on each side of the box and rocked it gently. The weight felt strange. It lacked the mechanical quality that would, one would expect for a threatening device. He peeled open the stout box. Nothing he had imagined prepared Azam for the contents. His head jerked involuntarily away from the sight. Inside a clear plastic bag, human body parts formed a gooey mass of red tissue and brown flesh. It was his mother. Retaliation was the standard operating procedure among the Somali warlords. But that his father would butcher his mother because she helped him escape had been unthinkable even to a young man steeped in the often grisly profession of piracy. As if to emphasize the unfeeling execution, a photograph had been laid atop the bag of human remains. It showed the mother kneeling in front of two men Azam recognized, their knives raised over the tearful woman. So Mahadi and Yasin had been the designated killers, and they had done their job well. Across the bottom of the photo in his father's handwriting was a message for Azam. If you try to bury your mother in Somalia, we will dig her up and feed her to the dogs. The next day, Azam carted his mother's body to the coast and buried her at sea. Suggest to you, if what we believe is actually true, and if we want to actually live a life that matters now and for eternity, it will require sacrifice. It will require of the people who call Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior, great sacrifice. And I think that that's what we find here in Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. So let's look together at the opening verse, the opening couple of verses of Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. We see the scattering of the church. Acts 8, verse 1, Saul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned him deeply. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Let's pause there. What we find is Saul, Acts, Acts 8, 1 is directly related and following off of Acts chapter 7, where Saul is the man who later will be called Paul who will be the one who writes a significant portion of the New Testament. 
But here, at this particular time, Saul is, is, is just is giving oversight to the stoning death of, C, of Stephen. Because in chapter 7, what you have is Stephen, who has been tr- uh, put on trial for trumped-up charges that, that were uh, erroneous charges. And he gave a, an amazing speech, which we'll talk about in a, mo- a few moments. But something stirred. When Stephen, who is the first martyr of the church, gave this speech, something stirred in the heart of Saul that made him revile against the church. And at that particular point, he, it radicalized him against the followers of Jesus Christ. And Saul worked diligently to persecute Christians. And the people, the lay people, were scattered throughout all of the area. So there, what in, the, in the church, what had been happening is that the, the message of Jesus Christ had been coming, and there had been all these signs and wonders, and the church was growing by thousands of people. And now, because of this, this speech and because of this reaction from Saul and the persecution that broke out against the church, and the church was scattered throughout all of the area, on that day, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. The church was scattered. And the apostles went underground in Jerusalem. Came across a quote this week by Tim Keller. And he he says this. God never calls you radically in without sending you radically out. God never calls you radically in without sending you radically out. God called in all of these new believers. They were coming into the church. They were experiencing a new community. They were loving one another. They were giving to one another like they had never experienced before. God had called them radically into life, into community together. And then persecution came and he sent them radically out in order that they might be able to go share the message of Jesus. I wonder, I wonder if God hasn't given us, God hasn't given you his promises simply for your own security. God hasn't given you his provision simply for your own comfort. That God hasn't given you or me, he hasn't given himself to us simply so that we can be a part of some exclusive club. Because those whom God calls near, he calls in order to send. Those who he radically calls near, he calls in order that he may radically send out. God called you close. God gave you his presence. God brought you near so that you could be radically sent out. That's why we have experienced the nearness of God that we might be able to be those who are sent. It's always been this way. Genesis chapter 12, I remind you of the promise, the, the promise that God made with Abram, or later to be called Abraham. The Lord had said to Abram, grow from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. He says, 
I will make you a great, he makes a promise. God makes a promise to Abram, says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Why? So that you will bless others. And you will be a blessing. And, you, and all of the people of the earth will be blessed through you. It was always God's intent that he, this is how he would use his people. I will make you into a great nation in order that you may be a blessing. I will bless in order that you may be a blessing to others. Has God blessed you? Has God not blessed our church? I think God has not blessed us. God has not blessed you simply so that you can be comfortable. God has not blessed you, nor has he blessed me, simply so that we can tell ourselves how blessed we are. God certainly didn't bless us in order that we can go on Twitter and Facebook and make hashtag blessed over all of our pictures. God blessed us. He blessed us in order that we might be a blessing. We would be hard-pressed, I think, to make a case that we are not blessed by God. I'm not at all saying that we have some sort of perfect life. I'm not saying that we have a perfect church. I'm not saying, I'm not at all, hear me say this, I'm not at all trying to minimize the daily struggles that, that are real, that you face every single day. For some of you that are brutal things that you have walked through over the course of these last 12 months, in no way am I seeking to minimize those real struggles. But what I am saying, and when we look at the world and all that is going on in our world, we, have, we would be hard pressed to make a case that we are not blessed. And God has blessed us. Why? Why? So that we can be a blessing. It says in Luke 12, to whom much is given, much is required. God has given us much, and therefore we have a responsibility with what we have been given in order that we might bless others. In Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, God uses persecution in order to scatter the church, in order that his his message may go forward. That's what he's doing. God uses persecution of the church in order to create a movement where everyone owns the vision and everyone is on the mission. That's what it, that's the church. That's the early church. And that's our church. To live a life that matters now into eternity means that we are sent, that we are scattered, that we are to live lives that are on mission for Christ, owning the message and owning the mission. So what did they do when they were scattered? What did they do while they were scattered? Well, they shared. Verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and they saw the signs performed, they all paid close attention to what he had said. For with shrieks, and impure, with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. What did they do? Well, Philip went down to Samaria. You may remember that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other. They would, they would, the Jews would go walking all the way around Samaria to not have to pass through Samaria. And now... 
And now the scattering of the church happens, and where does Philip go? He goes to a city in Samaria. And what does he do? He begins, to, he begins to preach. He begins to share the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. What did he do? He talked about Jesus. He had been scattered in order to preach Jesus. But when we think of preaching, we have a tendency to think of people who stand on a platform or have a microphone or doing what I'm doing right now. That's not what, that's not what he did. What he did, what the thrust here is not the preaching that I'm doing, but it's the, it's the gossiping of the gospel. It's just talking. It's evangelism. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's what he's doing. He's talking to these people. Because you see, we are mistaken if we think that the, that the primary way in which, which the message of Jesus ought to go out is for you to invite your friends to come hear, to come hear me preach. Because it's Listen, the, pri- the, the most effective way for your friends to hear about Jesus is not through me. I will preach. I will preach the Bible. I will talk about Jesus. I love to talk about Jesus. I'll keep talking about Jesus. But your friends need to hear Jesus from you. You know why? Because you're their friend. Because they know you. Because that's why it's your job. And it's my job to go talk to Jesus about, with my friends and with my colleagues and with my family members and with my work associates. Well, my work associates like Jesus. But it's your job to go out because why? Because you have a message and you've been sent on a mission and you've been scattered out. When we leave this place, guess what we're going to do? We're going to scatter all around Maple Grove, the surrounding communities and the Twin Cities. And we're going to be scattered in order that what? We may talk about Jesus. They talked about the word. But it was accompanied with deeds for the shrieks and impure spirits that came out of many who were paralyzed and lame who were healed. Right? Because what? When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they paid close attention to what he said. When they saw the good deeds, the real, met need, the real felt needs being met by, the, by Philip, then they were willing to listen to his message. So when we go out, when we as a church try to reach our community and try to meet the needs at Rice Lake Elementary School and, when, or, and, and Fernbrook Elementary School, when we try to be re- very present in our community, the reason is that our good deeds may be able to open the door for the message of Jesus Christ. That's why we do what we do. And so, is, so for you, as you go out, as you build relationships, as you, as you go around your neighborhoods, as you go around the office and you serve other people, it is with the opportunity to be able to say that your good deeds back, back up the message or pave the way for the message, for our mission of our lives. And then what was the result? Of they went out and they preached the word. They talked about Jesus. They accompanied with good deeds. And the result in verse 8, there was great joy in that city. That the people of Samaria responded to a Jewish savior named Jesus. Because of the great works that were being done, then there was great joy in that city. There was great life. There was new life and new joy in a city that needed life and needed joy. But how did the, how did Verses 5 through 8 happen. How did the great life and joy that entered into the city, how did that happen? It happened through verses 1 through 4. It was through the persecution. It was through the pain. It was through the difficulty that the result ended up being in new life and great joy for that city. 
For if there was no persecution, then there would have been no scattering. And if there was no scattering, then there would be no new life and new joy. You see, joy in life does not come in spite of misery and pain and persecution. No, joy in life comes through misery and pain and persecution. If there's anything that has been so great, that, that great accomplishment, you know that it came through your own hard work, that you got the joy of the great accomplishment. And so it is with Christ. And so it is with the gospel. That it is, if we are going to see great joy of new life going out, it is because there will be a scattering. It is because there is a persecution. It is because there is sacrifice that is required. If we are to live a life that really matters for now and to eternity, it will require a scattering, it will require a sharing, and it will require a sacrifice. In Acts chapter 6, what we find here is Stephen being arrested. And the reason why he was arrested, we find in verse 12. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. And they produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say this, or say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. Right? And then in chapter 7, verse 1, then, he, then the high priest, as Stephen is now uh, on trial, says, are these charges true? And now Stephen, through chapter 7, will launches into a wonderful sermon or a wonderful speech that ultimately, well, it leads to his stoning. It leads to his death. He has one opportunity to defend himself against the charges that were false charges, so what does he do? He gives them a history lesson. That's what he does. This is well worth your time this afternoon for you to read through this and take some time meditating on what Stephen is actually talking about. Let me give you a helicopter ride over Stephen's speech before we get to his conclusion that gets him killed. Right? So in verse 2, he, be, he brings up Abraham. Now, Abraham, of course, is the founding father. And so he brings up Abraham and Abraham's life who followed God and went off into the country, uh, a country that he didn't know where God was leading him. And so there he went. And then in verse 9, then we go to the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. So he brings up Joseph in and, and, and chapter 9. So he moves from Abraham over to Joseph. And then Joseph, who was sold into slavery in Egypt... And he continues on the story of Joseph and the famine that had struck Egypt and Canaan. And then he moves on from there, from Joseph to verse 17. And there he says, And the time had come, uh, the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham. A promise to Abraham, right? Abraham to Joseph. Now it's time for the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And he says, that they had great persecution in Egypt. So therefore, how is this, this nation going to be blessed? How is this nation going to be grown? Uh, enter Moses, verse 20. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. And then it goes on about Moses' life and his four, first 40 years and then into his second 40 years. And the second 40 years is when he actually does his ministry and he actually leads the people and does the whole let my people go thing. Right? And that's, that's what's happening with Moses. And then in verse 39, he starts to get a little personal. But our ancestors refused to obey him, and instead they rejected him, and their hearts were turned back to Egypt. And then Aaron comes in, and then they start bowing down to a golden calf. 
And then he brings in the fact, but then God was among them because there was the tabernacle and then there was the temple that Solomon had built. And then there was the prophecy of Isaiah, which is down here in verse 48. However, the most high God does the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophets say. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Abraham, Joseph, Moses. The people didn't follow Moses. The people worshiped false gods. But God was among them in the temple, and God was among them in the tabernacle, and then in the temple. But God isn't bound by this place. God is, he says, the heavens is my, heaven is my throne. And now he comes in for the kill as he seeks to, this is his defense. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors, right? They were disobedient. You are just like them. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Where there, where, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed the one who was predicted as the coming as the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. How do you think that went over? And when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they rushed him. And then they dragged him outside the city. And then they began to stone him to death. And listen to, Peter, or listen to Stephen's words. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. His face was like that of an angel, and he had joy, and he had radiance. And as he was being killed, he said, Lord, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And it was because Stephen died that the church was electrified. Because Stephen accepted his suffering. Stephen accepted his death. Stephen died nobly. Stephen died faithfully. He died, he died faithfully to God and he died faithfully to his friends. And the result was more life. Because Stephen died and he died in the way that he died, then there was persecution on the church and the church went to Samaria and joy was the result in Samaria because the gospel was preached. Do you see what happens because of the persecution, because of the standing, then this gospel was spread all the more. The gospel was spread all the more. Because violence against the church and trampling on the church and the silence of trying to silence the church and persecution of the church does not lead to violence in return. It leads to love and it leads to greater joy. Persecution turned the church into missionaries with a common vision on a common mission, and it was to tell people about Jesus, and it happened through persecution. Because the more you kill Christians, the more their blood is the seed for the, for the, for the, for the gospel. The more you oppress them, the better the church gets. The more death, the more resurrection. The more, dis, the more destruction, the more expansion. The more scattering, the more gathering. In this book called Killing Christians, 
It says in, in the introduction, the new face of Christianity, oppressors over the centuries have never recognized that the persecution of Christians is always a failed initiative. It just doesn't work. To the contrary, killing believers routinely accelerates the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. For those of us in the West, the threat of persecution is virtually non-existent. The statistics show the church growth in America, which experiences no persecution, has leveled off during the last 20 years. Why? Because Jesus' message of love and reconciliation thrives in a climate where hostility and danger and martyrdom are present. Persecution and the spread of the gospel are as inseparable as identical twins. Suffering propels the growth of the Jesus movement around the world. That suffering and the movement of Jesus Christ are inseparable, he says, as inseparable as identical twins. If you want to live a life that really matters now and for eternity, it will require scattering, it will require sharing, and it will require sacrifice. Stephen said to them, Father, don't hold this sin against them, because he understood that Jesus Christ hung on the cross, and from the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. If we are going to live a life that really matters, then it will require sacrifice. We may not be martyrs. We may not be called to, to live that life. But we are called to sacrifice for the cause and for the message and for the mission of Jesus Christ. When you profess, profess publicly that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, when you profess publicly, then that means that you may not be invited to that party. It may mean that you get skipped over for the promotion. It may mean that you don't get the job or the contract on the job because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. When we are a follower, and, and there is a form of death in that. There is a, a form of suffering. There is a form of pain. When people who we are trying to invest in don't return the investment, and the reason is because we love Jesus. With our money, when we actually give to the message, we give to the mission, we give to the, to the on mission, when we align our resources with what our God has called us to be and God has called us to do, then it is a form of death. It is a form of sacrifice. When you, ha when you take the money that you were saving up for a vacation, the money that you've been saving up for new floors, the money that you've been saving up for a boat, and you decide to give it to some, some other thing that's a part of furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether it's to the church or to a mission, it is a form of death. It is a form of sacrifice that we give, but it's all for the point of being able to see the gospel go forward in order that we might be able to see greater joy. When we align, when we live with the Christian sexual ethic of purity before marriage and purity within marriage, when we do that, there's a form of sacrifice that happens for those who are single and for those who are married. When we say there's a form of sacrifice that happens, we can't just go sleep with whomever we want or be whatever we want or look at with whatever we want. Because why? We're sacrificing for the cause and for the mission and for the name of Jesus Christ. When we forgive, there's sacrifice involved. If you forgive and it's easy, then it means you weren't really wounded. But if you've really been betrayed, if you've really been deeply wounded, then you understand that forgiveness 
is a form of suffering. For you to say, I choose to never use this offense ever against you, ever again. You understand it's a form of suffering. So our friend, Azam, was starting this gathering of believers in this village, and they had secret signs in order to know when they were going to be meeting. In order they would meet at night, and then they would, they would read the only copy of the Bible, and then they would, they would encourage one another on, and then people would die because they would be killed, and then they, but, but then more would come. And then they had this little gathering. And then there was this one day. Two men strolled arrogantly down the center of the village road. Preoccupied over boasting about the exploits of their latest girlfriends, they didn't notice a third man step silently from between two houses and into the road a dozen yards ahead of them. Their banter stopped abruptly when Mahadi and Yasin recognized the form in their path. They were not at all happy to see Azam again. I know what you did to my mother. Azam, we had to. We didn't want to, but your father ordered us and he threatened, and as he spoke, Mahadi's right hand moved slowly behind his back. I know... I know all about my father, Azam stared at the two murderers. I haven't come to harm you. He paused for effect. I've come to forgive you. Mahadi and Yasin glanced sideways at each other and then back at the man facing them, wondering whether or not to believe the words that they had just heard. Azam continued, You need to know that I love you and have prayed for both of you ever since I saw your picture with my mother. Jesus filled my heart with compassion for you. You need him just like I did. He can forgive murderers. His love is greater than anything you've done. It was the first meeting between the three men. They met again at night several more times. Impelled by Azam's testimony, Mahadi and Yasin offered their lives of piracy to the forgiving Savior. And for the moment... The two new believers in Azam told no one else what had happened. It was because of the sacrifice of forgiveness that Azam gave to these men that they received the joy of knowing forgiveness, that all of the things that they'd ever done were carried up and swallowed up in the cross of Jesus Christ, and there was great joy in their hearts. And when those two men come and join their little gathering of believers, there was great fear turned to great joy. You see, it is when we see the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf that we receive great joy. And then it is as these, as we are conduits of God's great forgiveness, that great joy happens and it comes at the sacrifice. When we sacrifice for the cause of Jesus Christ, the result is great joy. Our culture has shifted significantly over these last several years. And I don't know the future, and I don't know whether, what the impact, import of this will be on our country and what it will be for America. But here's what I do know. I couldn't be more optimistic about the future of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the degree to which there is separation between the church of Jesus Christ and those who are willing to stand for him, and when persecution happens, then what happens to the church? The church grows and the church spreads. And so therefore, my friends, I think we'll have a wonderful opportunity to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ moving forward in these days and these months that are ahead of us. 
and we want, to do, we want to be a part of it, do we not? To be a part of something that matters now and for eternity because one day he will return and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. May God come quickly. Let us pray. Father, these are weighty things. These are not things that we pretend to have a mastery of. But it does require us to come. And quite frankly, if I'm honest, I don't like it. I don't like sacrifice. I don't like the difficulty. And yet, Father, when we are united with the power of Jesus Christ, with the work of your spirit, trusting you that whatever the future holds, that you will use us to see your kingdom move forward. Father, please do that. Please help us to be, come to you with open hands and open hearts and say, use us for whatever your purpose is in order that we might be able to see your name receive all of the praise and all of the glory and all of the honor for all of time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.